Raising the Bar podcast, brought to you by the Association of Gray's Inn Students. Hello and welcome to this, the fourth episode of the Meet the Barrister series for the Raising the Bar podcast with me, Alana Hughes. In the Meet the Barrister series, I speak to a different guest barrister in each episode and discuss their path to the bar and their practice, as well as any other interesting topic of discussion that pops up. The aim of this series is to demonstrate that the bar is not a one-size-fits-all sort of profession, as it is sometimes wrongly assumed to be. Barristers come from a wide variety of backgrounds and specialise in many different areas of law. There is something for everyone. Lockdown measures that have been in place to combat the COVID-19 pandemic have begun to be eased in the UK. But here at Grey's Inn, we are still very much social distancing to keep everyone safe. And that means that this episode is being recorded remotely. And there may therefore be a slight reduction in audio quality, which we hope you won't mind. One of the benefits of our move to remote recording means that we're now able to have guests on from outside of London. And today is our first episode with a barrister on the Northern Circuit. My guest today was called to the bar in 2016 and is almost three years into a tenancy at Dean's Court Chambers in Manchester. Prudence Beaumont is a specialist family law barrister and enjoys a wide and varied family practice, encompassing public, private and financial remedy work. Prior to coming to the bar, Prue was an English literature teacher in a secondary school, having obtained a PGCE and a Master's in Education before embarking on the GDL to convert to law. Prue has kindly agreed to come on the podcast to speak with me about her path to the bar. Prue, hi, and welcome to the Raising the Bar podcast. Hi, thank you very much for having me. So Prue, can you tell me why it was that you decided to become a barrister? Uh, Law was something that I had been interested in um, for some time and I think it was probably something I had thought about prior to making my university choices, um, although I read English at university and not law. And um, I had been involved in lots of debating at university and run an outreach programme with children um, as part of that. Um, And I identified through doing that just the importance of advocacy and the necessity of providing people with the appropriate education so that they can voice their own opinions and views on matters and and the value that that holds. I think that that links very closely to what I do now um, as a family barrister because it is ultimately about giving a voice to individuals of society who are often voiceless and certainly that's true of children uh, and it is almost certainly true of the more de- the most and the more deprived uh, members of our society. So that was my main focus. It was about the advocacy. Um, Primarily, I was also interested in the uh, academic rigour of the law uh, and what life at the bar is like. Uh, And I was drawn to the independent nature uh, of it as a profession. I know before you studied the GDL and BPTC, you completed the Teach First programme. Could you tell me a little bit about what that programme is? Yeah, so Teach First is a graduate programme. It's two years long and its mission statement, so to speak, is to ensure that all children have fair access to good education, regardless of their socioeconomic background. 
what it does then is it places um, so-called exceptional graduates, their phrasing, not mine, uh, into some of the most deprived schools in the country. Prior to being placed in those schools, there's an intensive six-week training programme called Summer Institute where you are taught the basics, and I think it's fair to say they very much are the basics of teaching. Then you start teaching in that September on an 80% timetable. And unlike the PGCE where you would be phasing up, doing little bits of lessons and progressing to teaching a full lesson, right from the get-go, you are in the classroom on your own um, as the primary teacher of that lesson. And over that first year, you gain your PGCE qualification, essentially, or the equivalent of, and your qualified teaching status with that by undertaking um, assignments alongside your teaching. So for the, for the most part, you do your assignments and your essays in the school holidays. And in the second year, you carry on as a newly qualified teacher. And as part of that, you undertake um, the, the training that any other teacher would be undertaking if they were commencing their first year in the teaching profession. It's my understanding that about 50% of those who do it stay and 50% go. And that's about equivalent to the retention rates with teaching, generally speaking, anyway. So it's given that these graduates are being placed in challenging contexts, um, that's quite a good retention rate. Um, and I chose at the end of my two years um, to leave and pursue a career at the bar. In terms of the experience that you gained by completing that um, programme, it gave you a, a lot of obviously non-legal experience then that you could bring to the table in scholarship interviews and pupillage interviews. Do you notice any particular transferable skills between what you learned in your training as to become a teacher and being a barrister? Absolutely. The first point is that I was asked about it endlessly in interviews, in scholarship interviews, and in pupillage interviews, people were really interested to hear about it. It certainly has transferable skills because um, the very act of teaching is a form of advocacy. It allows you to deal and be more confident in dealing with interventions. And part, of course, of the job of a barrister in court, particularly, is that judges intervene, witnesses are difficult, um, and it allows you to have a confidence, I think, in managing those interventions because you are used to dealing with it in a classroom and a classroom is significantly more chaotic uh, an environment than um, the courtroom, which is much more civilised for the most part um, than your average classroom. So, yes, um, that was certainly one of the transfer skills was the advocacy um, the other, of course, is stress management. Um, I think the process of thinking on your feet and maintaining a calm exterior when inside you might feel a bit panicked or a bit concerned um, is a bit of an art form that all barristers have to master. And it certainly is something which Teach First assists you with because that's very much the process um, you undertake whilst you're in the classroom when somebody asks you a question you don't know the answer to or and does something that is totally inappropriate, like throwing a glue stick at another child's head, um, and how you react in that moment and manage um, situations. So I think it's very useful in terms of keeping your cool um, under stress. And um, as I, with any other professional job, um, it's about managing your priorities and time management skills, which of course are, are as useful at the bar as they are in, in almost any other job. 
Uh, I also think that for me, it was valuable in giving me an insight um, into actually what people's real lives are like that are very different from my own because uh, the reality is is that I've had a very privileged upbringing and um, had all the opportunities and whilst I may well have academically understood that people were less fortunate than me I think being confronted with it in, in real life with a child who hasn't had any breakfast and has got hunger pangs or um, doesn't have any clean clothes to wear or whatever that might be um, is a very important life lesson and that's especially valuable if you are working with um, those individuals uh, as adults in your professional life, um, which, uh, of course, I am within the area of, of family. So what then, if any, influence did your work in education have on your choice of family law as a specialist practice area? Um, I actually really wanted to do crime <laughs> initially. Um, it perhaps didn't have uh, as much influence as one would have thought. Um, but I did make applications um, for family sets too. I feel very much as if family um, chose me a bit more than I chose it. Um, but it is um, an obvious fit um, given my teaching background and actually my personality and skill set um, generally that family I think I was better suited to. My experience of education certainly assists because as part of um, family law I certainly deal with a lot of school reports and understanding about terminology that's used in school and various acronyms it has assisted me undoubtedly having a working knowledge of those matters um, in terms of having a confidence with dealing with them within um, family proceedings um, but also having an understanding of those children and managing their expectations particularly if you're if I'm representing a an older child with whom I may be taking direct instructions. I think my ability to liaise with them is much better because I have had to do that on a regular basis within teaching previously. And now that you've been a tenant for almost three years, are you finding that you're starting to find a specific area of family law that you hope to further specialise in? Or are you intending to maintain a varied practice with elements of both public and private work? So my practice is is, as you rightly identified, still um, divided into public and private and um, some finance work too. My preference is quite strongly for public law. I feel that that is where um, the most important work is done. Um, and I'm, that's not to diminish um, the valuable work that those in the other spheres do, of course. But I find that work most interesting and most challenging, and I think it raises the most interesting moral and legal points so for me, um, the focus going forward is likely to be more public law than the other areas. And what sort of specifically would you be able to pinpoint as your favourite type of case to be instructed on? I, I like medical evidence, so cases, non-accidental injury cases where there's complex medical evidence, I think that they are fascinating. Um, I, I'm interested really in, in all the aspects of public law. There isn't a particular um, type of case I have any strong affinity with for me the part of the interest in it is that it is um a fascinating expose of what human life is like and it's the same as looking at it really under under closely under a microscope or under a, a, some sort of lens because 
you have in family, I think, unlike crime, access. And that is somewhat of a privilege to the most detailed and intimate aspects of people's lives. You read their medical records, you read the school reports of their children, you read all the police disclosure. And so you have a quite a full picture even before you meet your client, if you're representing a parent, for example, about what they might be like based on the papers. Uh, I think that that's one of the elements of it that I think is fascinating. That probably um, relates to um, my love of literature because it is, when you read it on paper before you meet them, almost like a shocking novel in many ways um, and the complexities and the characters and the interplay between all of those aspects. So, um, yeah, I think, I don't know if that really answers the question, but... No, definitely. You've mentioned um, meeting clients in person and I suppose in today's current climate, that's not really been possible for the past few months. How have you found the shift to virtual hearings where getting to meet a client face to face is a privilege that we haven't been able to have? I think it's really challenging. I think it highlights the importance of face to face contact. The cases that I've been doing in recent weeks have been less contested as a result of it not being considered fair for lots of things to proceed in the way in which they ordinarily would and it not being fair for them to proceed remotely. Video conferencing certainly provides some advantages to that but dealing with hearings on the telephone and obviously a lot of the family hearings are going forward via the telephone as well as via video hearings I think is very difficult and because it's not until it's taken away from you that you realise how much you gauge from your client when you first meet them from their body language and not so much what they do say, but often what they don't say and how they don't say it. And I think particularly for cases such as um, interim removal hearings where the court is being invited to remove a child from the care of a parent, um, they are some of the most stressful proceedings for parents and they're often brought on an emergency basis and parents often feel that they haven't had a huge amount of notice. And um, dealing with that without having met your client properly, I think, is very challenging. Um, so I, it certainly highlighted to me the importance of of real human contact uh, in conducting proceedings. And I suppose in a way that's something that is specific to family law, particularly where that human contact is really needed because people are ultimately having one of the worst days of their lives when they attend court. Absolutely. And I think that part of um, what makes good family barristers, good family barristers is an understanding of exactly that, that people are having a dreadful time and um, they need some reassurance from you to a certain extent. That being said, there are some hearings that may certainly can be dealt with uh, remotely. And I imagine we'll continue to be dealt with remotely uh, after this lockdown eases up because they are dealt with more efficiently and more quickly. Um, but certainly contested hearings, hearings where you're meeting clients for the first time, uh, there's no substitute for the face-to-face -face, uh, real life meeting, I don't think. I remember on one of my first mini pupilages uh, in a family set, the barrister said to me that in the public family cases, there is never a winner or a loser and the aim is just to make a terrible situation just a little bit better for your client. Do you agree with that idea that that's ultimately what you get up in the morning to do to try, to try and make awful situations just a little bit better for people? 
No, sometimes there is a winner, I think. And there certainly is a feeling after um, protracted proceedings where a child returns home, your represented parent who's been desperately wishing for that child to return home for many months, often, you know, beyond the 26 weeks or within that time frame, that they have won because they have got the outcome that they wanted. Although saying that, the fact that they've had to go through that process in itself um, means that they have lost to a certain extent as well. So there is a balancing act. There are many more hearings which don't conclude with any kind of feeling of triumph. And I think that that feeling that you've made it slightly better um, is probably true. Um, And there are certainly, for me, uh, it is more difficult when you have hearings where you feel that parents have been not failed by the family justice system, but failed by uh, the state and by the community uh, on a more wholesale level. So um, they haven't had an adequate education. They haven't had uh, any support um, with uh, issues relating to housing. Uh, They're living in difficult circumstances. Those, there are issues with uh, drugs and alcohol, perhaps. Um, They've had very, very difficult, challenging childhoods and they are a product of those circumstances and they've not had the opportunity um, to access anything which could ameliorate that. I I think those hearings are very difficult and I think that's when you feel like you're maybe making a dreadful situation just slightly better um, by virtue of the representation you're able to offer them. Um, I I find that aspect of it certainly quite frustrating though because um, sometimes you are limited by what you can do by virtue of the circumstances that individual finds themselves in. And when you do find yourself limited and, and when you do find yourself working with a client who has been burdened with, you know, deep rooted systemic failures and nothing has, you know, gone in their favour in their entire lives. Uh, how do you process that sort of in your own mind in order to move on and, and sort of accept that there's not really a large amount that you can do for that client? I think it's very difficult and I think that the bar is still adjusting to accepting the idea that that is difficult. There is, I think, still a um, predominant theme that people say, things which I think are actually quite unuseful, like, well, you're too busy at the bar anyway, so you just don't think about it because you move on to the next case. And while some of that is true and you are very busy, there are certain cases and certain individuals um, that do affect you or impact you in a way that others don't. Um, and it's strange because I think preparing for cases, because it is so busy, is much like cramming for an exam. So in the immediate days after a case, I could tell you the date of birth, the child with whom the proceedings were con- concerning. But three weeks later, I might not be able to tell you the name of the case because it's crammed for that purpose. And unless it has had some specific feature or some specific impact, uh, I may not remember the details of it off the top of my head. Um, I think that you deal with it by talking about it with your uh, colleagues at the bar. I think part of the joy of being a barrister is the collegiate sense of the bar, and I think people talk about that in a kind of throwaway way, but I think actually it's really valuable, and they're the people who understand best and what those difficult cases are like. And I think there's a lot of discussions that go on uh, amongst barristers. And certainly I have those conversations with um, friends in chambers and outside in other chambers who practice in family law about, you know, the kind of railing against those systematic failures and uh, systemic failures and uh, and the concerns uh, about that. 
but that ultimately you have to um, preserve yourself to a certain extent and do the very best you can and leave uh, work where work belongs because otherwise I think if you don't uh, it's probably quite damaging for your for yourself. You've just mentioned the collegiate sense of the bar and I suppose in a way that collegiate atmosphere is best exemplified by the the inn and the structure of the four inns. How was it? I know you're on the northern circuit and, and you might not get down to London very often but how was it that you decided um, to choose Grace? I made my decision based on kind of the um, profiles of the inns really. I did a bit of research about them prior to um, joining Grace. Um, and I looked at kind of who had been there previously and um, links with the circuits. I think Grey's historically has had quite a, I think this may not be so true anymore, but I think previously I'd had quite a strong link with the Northern Circuit and Rose Helbram was, of course, a member of Grey's Inn um, and she was um, a leader of the Northern Circuit some time ago now, obviously. Um, but so I, I looked at those kind of factors. I was quite keen to be in a smaller inn where I felt that I might be... Um, better nurtured and, and supported and I certainly that has been my experience of Grey's um, that it has always been very supportive as an environment um, albeit that the reality is I'm not sure now I'm in practice and I'm a tenant how much day-to-day -day regular contact I have with the inn because um, as you identify I'm on the northern circuit and so I'm I'm not popping down on a regular regular basis. But in a way you know I mentioned in my introduction one of the benefits of this move and um, because of COVID-19 to more virtual connectivity and a more virtual community is perhaps going to be something going forward that is embraced by the inn and I know that it's definitely something that's being looked at to mean that all circuits can get involved with um, qualifying sessions, can get involved with continuing professional development. So do you feel that going forward the move to virtual might help with sort of the isolation that you might feel in a way from from London because you're on the Northern Circuit? I think it's really difficult. Um, I uh, never felt when I was um, doing the bar course that I was in any way, I, I did the bar course in Manchester, so I didn't do that in London either. So I travelled down for my, for, I know there were some limited qualifying sessions on circuit for the most part, I travelled down to London. I didn't for a moment feel when I was in London that I was a, an outsider or a comer in from the north northern circuit. I felt as welcomed at the inn as I think anybody else from any other circuit. So I've, I was very heartened by that because I didn't feel there was any um, difference. Um, I have stayed at the inn um, in the accommodation when I've been in London on a few occasions. And that's been a nice way to connect um, with the inn. Um, I think the reality is we are very busy and... Um, it would definitely help if there was some more online um, things which, which those of us who are not based in London could connect with um, and more activities taking place and dinners and various other things um, outside of London because the reality is, is that by the time you finished in court and got down to London, although the train's fairly fast, uh, it, it all becomes a bit complicated, certainly if it's something that's midweek. Um, but yes, I, I definitely welcome uh, an increased involvement um, with the in. Um, on circuit. I know that you were awarded GDL and BPTC scholarships by Grey's Inn. How vital were these for you in facilitating your career at the bar, not just in terms of obviously the financial assistance that it gives towards the enormous fees, but also confidence in the sense that panels of esteemed barristers believed that you were the right fit for the profession? 
it was absolutely vital. I would not have um, pursued a career at the bar without them. Um, I already had a professional job that I was having to give up for very poor odds um, at having a go at another career. So I had to be fairly sure that I had stood a reasonable chance. I mentor quite a few um, students uh, who are thinking about seeing a career at the bar and I tell all of them, particularly those that are non-law um, graduates, that they must apply for scholarships. I don't think the take-up and the knowledge uh, around particularly the GDL scholarship is particularly well known. I think that's less so for the for the BBTC scholarships nowadays. I think they are quite well known amongst um, most of those that are applying for the bar course. Um, absolutely vital in terms of confidence. Um, I think it, it, it stands you in great stead. I think one of the other advantages, aside from the financial um, and the confidence building, is that the structure of the interviews are very similar to pupillage interviews. So even just attending, and this is what I always say to anyone I'm mentoring, even just attending and having, having a go at the interview, even if nothing comes of it, is a brilliant experience because, as you say, the panels are really esteemed members of the bar who often will have sat on their interview panels within their own chambers and um, so I think it's a really a really useful opportunity in that regard as well but no I it was vital um, and the fees are um, well they're extortionate and um, they certainly were when I was doing it. I know that um, the INS have been working quite hard in terms of looking at the structure of the bar course in, in recent years but I was just I did the buckles just prior to those changes coming in. Um, so, uh, no, I would not be at the bar without those scholarships. I didn't have any other financial help from any family. I would not have been in a position to do it without them. There's no doubt about that. Finally, Pro, just before we finish, I just want to ask, what is it that you enjoy most about being a barrister? Um, I feel like there should be some learner dance for this. I think I probably enjoy cross-examining the most. <laughs> Um, about being a barrister and calling evidence. I think that's what's been difficult about being in lockdown is that it's not the same uh, over a remote link and I'm certainly doing less of it. So calling evidence is certainly, um, and being in court is certainly the aspects that I enjoy most about it. Um, I also really love the people at the bar. I think it's actually a real privilege to be surrounded by so many um, bright and interesting individuals. And I find the clients that I have the privilege of representing, be that a local authority, uh, be that a parent or a child, um, endlessly um, interesting and challenging. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been it's been brilliant. I regularly tell people um, that I think it's the best job in the world and I, so far, I stand by that. Um, what are your hopes for the future in terms of how you hope your practice grows? And I know, obviously, with your background in education that you've discussed with me today, are there any pro other projects or work outside of your role as a barrister that you, you might want to get involved with in the future? I'm a school governor, so I do that alongside um, being at the bar. And I do a fair bit of mentoring um, and various of the, you know, the bar mock trial and things like that. So I've, I've tried to use where I can those skills and that knowledge I have from education and blend the two where I can. And I, I hope I'll be able to maintain those links with education, um, particularly because uh, I am um, strongly of the view that the bar has a chronic problem in terms of recruiting individuals from um, less affluent backgrounds and particularly those who are from ethnic minorities. So that is something which 
uh, certainly I would want to be involved in supporting uh, that change. Um, so I think that that that's my kind of hope for the future in terms of doing other bits and bobs. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know what my hopes are professionally, really, rather than to still very early days. So um, I think that's one of the strangest things about this job is that um, most of us have been jumping through a lot of hoops and exams for many, many years before we get here. And then you take tenancy and then that's just your job until you might think at some point, perhaps of taking a judicial, applying for a judicial appointment or, you know, uh, that those are so far in the future. Um, so at the moment, just the desire is to keep doing interesting work and, and to carry on enjoying it. Pri, thank you so much for your time. I know that you're super busy with virtual courts um, and I'm really, really grateful that you came on to have a chat with me and it's been really lovely to hear about your journey to the bar. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Raising the Bar podcast. Please subscribe, rate and review. And for more information, check us out on Twitter at RaisingTheBarGI.